zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Night School, released September 11th, 1981. Always remember, it was written by Ruth Avergon, directed by Ken Hughes, and released by Paramount Pictures. Screenwriter Ruth Avergon has said that the script was inspired by an article on the real-life headhunting tribes of Papua New Guinea. Alice Sweet Alice and Tanya's Island director, Alfred Soule, was set to direct the film, which would star his girlfriend at the time, Tanya's Island star, Vanity, who we last saw credited as Dee Dee Winters in Terror Train. Soule left the film to direct slasher parody Pandemonium, and although she does not appear in Pandemonium, Vanity left the project with him. Replacement director Ken Hughes was brought on, and screenwriter Avergon discovered new lead Rachel Ward at a New York City casting call, and no offense to Vanity, but wow, is Rachel Ward a huge step up. Yeah. <laughs> Production lasted five weeks, mostly in Boston's Beacon Hill neighborhood on a $1.2 million budget. Though it was not well-received at the time, modern-day critics have praised the film for its giallo aesthetics. In Spain, it was released as Psychosis 2, a fake sequel to Hitchcock's Psycho, for which a real sequel was only a couple years away. The French title translated to The Eyes of Terror, and the Italian translates to The Killer of the Night, but most markets paraphrased the French title as Terror Eyes, or Terrorize? It sounds like Terrorize. <laughs> All right. The switch to Night School as a title happened at the distribution stage, likely because it was paired as a double feature with student bodies, and they wanted to focus on the school theme. I hate the title. You do? I really hate the it's title. It's not that bad. No, I just feel like it doesn't... Are any of those other titles better, though? No, because no. I like these are all interchangeably... Like I, I will, for the rest of the podcast, get Night School and Student Bodies mixed up. I literally had to yes. ask you before we recorded which one those were because i will what? also get it mixed up with uh what was the other one where a bunch of kids students graduation died? day yeah graduation day final exam yeah yes all of those all of those <laughs> would it have been better if they called it head of class oh yes yes it would have yeah that's what i would have gone <laughs> because with. at least it evokes something about the movie i don't even feel like these People are going to school at night. Yeah, you'd call it head of class, and the poster is literally just a bucket with hair coming out of it. Yeah. Because night school is like, makes me think of um, like continuing ed classes. Yeah, it's like, like stripes. Yeah, but <laughs> like these what are Egon's like, teaching. But these are like intense college, you know, uh, classes. Like they don't feel like it's continuing ed. Right, yeah. Amazingly, the comparatively tame gore of this film was enough to land Night School in Section 2 of the infamous Video Nasty list, but the removal of 76 seconds of footage was enough to get the film into theaters and onto home video. Which version did we watch? I don't know, but it doesn't seem bad enough to no. warrant a Video Nasty listing, but other films we've covered also didn't right. seem that bad. Boogeyman is somehow on the list, you know, there's there's stuff that... Hey, that had glowing glass bits. That's true. <laughs> And it had that kid get stuck in the window. Yeah, that little neck crack. <laughs> that <laughs> oh might have been enough. God. Yeah. <laughs> we start with a wide shot of the Boston skyline. We get lots of inserts of various corners of the city at night and finish with the Jack and Jill daycare center. Parents are picking up kids at the end of the night and we're down to the last kid, Lisa, when her mother arrives. I don't know if Jack and Jill is like a good name because doesn't... Doesn't don't the... they get horribly injured? Yeah. 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 Yes. Doesn't he break his crown? Yeah, yeah. That, that's his skull. <laughs> <laughs> crown means skull. <laughs> the teacher, Miss Barron, is left on the little playground spinner alone. I guess it's also called a merry-go-round, but I yeah. didn't want to confuse people by calling it that because there's not horses. It's just like a circle with bars on it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure it probably has a... It's called a playground spinner from what I could find, but I, I wouldn't have imagined that particular piece of playground equipment from that name but did you not call it a merry-go-round when you were a kid we called a different thing a merry-go-round it was automated with horses and stuff oh. and i didn't want people to think we're no, talking that's like about a, a carousel little... but like i we always called it a merry-go-round yeah know. i mean it, it's called both 
I think I don't think you see too many of them on on playgrounds though these days. Yeah, I know. Because uh, the goal of that thing was to get it as fast as possible. Yeah. Well, this plays into that. The teacher, Miss Barron, is left on the little playground spinner merry-go-round thing. Her coworker Harry asks if she's leaving, but she says she'll take her time. After he leaves, a motorcycle rolls up outside the gate, and the rider comes down the steps to the playground. Miss Barron mistakes this person for a parent. I am afraid all the children have left. Who was it you came for? And the writer doesn't answer, even though I'm sure everyone suspected that this person was going to say, you. Yeah. But or, they don't or, for a very good reason. <laughs> or at least do like a menacing point. Yeah. Like, I think I would have appreciated that. But that's not what happens. The writer doesn't answer. They just spin the merry-go-round until the teacher is panicking. Once it's going fast enough for the girl not to let go, the writer holds out a kukri. Kukris are a type of Indian machete with a distinctive curve to the blade, and whenever I see this weapon, I think of the first time I saw them used in John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China, where they're wielded by the Three Storms, who then do synchronized front flips, throwing their blades into the chest of three Changsing warriors. The motorcycle rider holds the blade out over the spinning playground equipment, and Miss Barron tries to block the blade with her arms, but she's powerless to protect herself for long. The rider even fakes her out a few times, lifting the blade just as she gets to it, but eventually they slash hard at the girl, and the screen fades to red on a scream. I think it might have been cool if the killer brought the motorcycle down to the playground and put a tire against the base of the merry-go-round <laughs> to make it spin incredibly fast. I've seen videos of that. I have too. Done. That's what made me think of it. We match cut to an extreme close-up of a red sweater on a crowded city the next day. Lieutenant Judd Austin is walking with his girlfriend Stevie and they joke about him dragging his feet on a proposal. They hop in his BMW and head back to his place. They just went shopping for breakfast because they woke up after a long night of sex and they realized they didn't have breakfast makings. He has a sarcastic response to everything she says here and it's quickly tiring. How do you want your eggs? Cooked. Your wit is outstanding. Oh, I'm glad you like it. When she talks about an upcoming Harvard event and suggests he maybe attend looking for a new job, he says he likes his life how it is, but offers a consolation picnic this afternoon. But only if she cooks his breakfast immediately. Okay, slave. Breakfast. I'm starving. Do you guys recall the last time a man referred to his significant other as slave as an attempted joke? I don't. Was it, um, The Incredible Shrinking Woman? No. More recent than that, it was Oliver Reed who said it. Was it Burnt Offerings? It was Burnt Offerings. Hey, Slade! Hi! I think he pulled it off better. <laughs> I don't think he did. <laughs> a phone rings, and Lieutenant Austin is called away to the crime scene that we saw in the cold open. He tries to apologize to Stevie and asks her to book a table at the racket club tonight. It's my job. Yeah. Well, it's a lousy job. And we'll never see her again. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if that's a spoiler, really. But she yeah. doesn't come back. We'll never find out if he follows through on that yeah. proposal. Or what he What got are they going to order at the racket club? <laughs> did she cook the eggs? Or did he eat them raw? <laughs> is the racket club for racket ball? <laughs> or is it just noisy? <laughs> that was dumb. <laughs> Austin arrives at the daycare and is met by partner Taj. Or Taj? Taj. Yeah. Let's say Taj. The medical examiner says the victim was cleanly decapitated and mentions that this makes two killings in a week, but it seems weird not to point out that they were both decapitations. Why would he say, this is the second person to die this week? It's like, <laughs> by getting their head cut off, yeah. in parentheses. It's like, I would say that that's an all-time low yeah. for the city. Yeah. Only two people and died. And for their heights, all-time low. <laughs> Taj lifts the blanket to show the victim to the lieutenant. All right, I give up. Where's the rest of her? This bitch you're not gonna believe. But the head is in a bucket a few feet away. I'm not sure why he wouldn't believe this. That's where I would have guessed it was if I was standing where he was. I, I thought he was going to say that the killer stood here and then made a perfect basket. <laughs> oh, yeah, head. it was in the hoop. <laughs> I was just like, oh, man, did they throw it from all the way over there? Yeah, it got stuck in the hoop, so he tried to knock it out with another basketball for a while, and then he just <laughs> he had left. To, he had to cut off another head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shoot, I gotta get another one. That's perfect. They head into the school to speak with the director. They learn from the woman that Miss Barron was enrolled at Wendell College for night classes at an all-girls school on Deacon Hill. Austin says he's headed to the girls' school, but he stops by the county coroner first. Taj complains about getting the short end of the stick, but Austin says that's his reward for being a Harvard graduate. 
The coroner says there were no signs of sexual abuse or a struggle, and he compares the wound to that of a guillotine. It was very quick. Taj meets up with him at the hospital, and Austin points out that this is the second head in a week that they've discovered submerged in water after the first one was found in a duck pond. Yeah, I, I really didn't like this cut to the coroner saying, just saying, the head was cut clean off like a guillotine. It's like, okay, d- thanks for the medical yeah. information here. Couldn't the examiner have told me that at the scene? Yeah, exactly. That should have been at the scene. Like, the, this is the head was clean, cut clean off. Why did we need to transition to this other scene? The just, illusion of production value. Yeah. We had another location we could shoot at. Why waste it? He tells Taj he doesn't think it's a coincidence that the heads were both underwater, but Taj thinks that part is irrelevant. Look, this is no mystery job. We got a nut on our hand. A psycho who just likes to go around chopping off heads. And that's your considered opinion, is it? Fifteen years on the force. Fifteen years. Still a sergeant? Sticks and stones, Lieutenant. Sticks and stones. That night, Austin parks across the street from Wendell College for Women, established 1881. Right away, I assumed the school's centennial was important, but it isn't. He meets with registrar Helene Griffin, but she doesn't have any useful information. She leads him to Professor Millet's anthropology class, which is where the victim, Anne Barron, was studying. A student named Kathy tells Mrs. Griffin that some men from the press are here downstairs, and she leaves to attend to that. Griffin has the good sense not to interrupt Millet's lesson, but when she steps away, Austin just wanders into the class and sits in the back. Millet is presenting a slideshow of a Southeast Asian reproductive ceremony. As his lecture ends, the class have no questions, and when they're excused, Austin approaches Millet. I don't think it's a reproductive ceremony. No? No. I mean, he's talking about it being a rebirth, but it was about, like, tribe members leaving for another tribe. I'm, I'm not sure. He's mad to have been interrupted, but shuts up when he learns that this is a cop. For some reason, he doesn't predict that this involves his student Anne Barron's murder less than 24 hours ago. He suggests the lieutenant speak with Kim's friend, who is his teacher's assistant. So, so far we've had him meet the dean of the school, who passes him on to Millet, who then Millet passes him on to this other girl. Yes. He can tell Kim is made uncomfortable by the request and gives her a quick kiss on the forehead to calm her down. Millet does, not the lieutenant. That would be even weirder. <laughs> oh, you look nervous there. <laughs> look, it's okay. I'm just here for a few questions. <laughs> just as he does, another girl enters the room, Miss Agi, as played by Rachel Ward. She looks upset to find Millet with his arm around this girl, and she invites him out of the room to discuss some paperwork. Kim said Anne did have a boyfriend, but she was always very secretive about who it was. I think because it was someone we both knew and she didn't want me to know she was having an affair with him. A married man, maybe. Something like that. Done with questioning, Austin exits the campus, and at the bottom of the stairs he finds Millet, and Miss Agi is all smiles now. Millet finally introduces Miss Agi, an exchange student, who is credited only as Eleanor, a name we won't hear until the second half of the film. On his way out, Millet tells Austin that he thinks the killer is going to be hard to find on account of being a psychopath. A maniac that strikes without rhyme or reason, without any tangible motive. It's going to be a very hard person for you to find. Oh, we'll find you. We cut down the street to the Lamplight restaurant and Miss Agi ducks inside. We start on the face of a creepy-looking dishwasher character we will come to know as Gary, who I thought I recognized at first, but he's not in much. I think he just looks like an evil version of Joe Latruglio. <laughs> he does look really familiar, but he literally was in like this and one other Yeah, thing. it was nothing. He seems to be a little mentally deficient, and he crosses the dining room to clear the table Miss Agi has sat down behind. The waitress, Carol, comes over to take her order and somehow recognizes her as a student of Millet's. She asks if it's true he sleeps with all his students, and she claims she wouldn't know. Agi tosses some change on the table to cover the coffee she's been brought and stands to leave the diner without even taking a sip of it. At the door, the waitress asks her if she's comfortable walking home alone after the murders, and she says she'll be fine. Gary is taking out the trash in a back alley when he sees Agi walk by and starts to follow her down the street. After a while, she senses him behind her, but whenever she turns around, he disappears. She begins running, and eventually he's not bothering to hide anymore. She stops beside a gate to get a good look at his face, when suddenly a German shepherd pokes its face between the bars to bark loudly at her. As she continues running home, she trips in the street and drops her things, but quickly collects them to continue running. She gets to her door and struggles to withdraw her keys from her purse. She eventually gets into the entry hall and slams the door shut behind her. 
She engages the slide lock on the front door, so the next girl chased into this building will be locked out and murdered. She undresses in her room and prepares a shower. As she bathes, we see the front door click open and someone reaches through the crack to try and undo the slide lock, but they can't reach. By design. They ring the buzzer and Agi can barely hear it over the shower. Yeah, it's like the loudest shower ever. Yeah, but when she turns the water off, it stops. After a moment, we see a blurry figure through the shower curtain creeping toward her. When he whips open the curtain, Agi screams to find Professor Millet standing there. He tells her he rang the bell, and didn't she hear? And I wanted her to ask, wait, how did you get in here then? I'm still curious. <laughs> we just cut downstairs so the door splintered into the building, like he just busted his way in. Well, he says he came in the back way. It's like, like, then why did you just lock the front door? Yeah. They kiss a bit, and we jump forward in time, and suddenly the water in the tub is bright red. I never thought that she was dead here. I assumed that this was meant to imply that Agi was menstruating while she was taking her shower. But the camera tilts up and we see that Professor Millet is smearing red stuff all over her naked body. And then the shower stream is washing it down into the tub. But I have no idea what this stuff is supposed to be. I think it's like something from the rituals that they observed yeah, in I Papua mean, it, New Guinea. It's kind of like, yeah, tribal face paint type yeah. stuff, I think. But he's putting it in her mouth and in her ears and stuff. And it's like, it's already gross, but it's like, it better not also taste gross. Because this is just disgusting to watch. Yeah, I feel like you could also tell that this was not the first take because, like, the side of his neck and face are pretty, like, red. Red from the hot water, probably? <laughs> well, I think just from getting that stuff on him and washing it off like it's stained. Oh, maybe. We cut from a shot of the drain to a woman in scuba gear swimming around an aquarium full of fish. She releases some dead octopi into the tank and sea turtles approach to eat them. Visitors to the aquarium watch the employee feed fish and turtles and eventually step away from the window, and suddenly the killer, in a full-body biker outfit, complete with helmet, stops to look through the window into the tank. Did this person take off their helmet to buy a ticket to the aquarium, or were they allowed to buy a ticket at the booth wearing this helmet? <laughs> they just walked in. Uh, I mean, I'm assuming it's... Open to the public? I don't know if it's open to the public, but it's, it's hard to tell what time of day it is. Either way, it's because, weird that this person's walking through an aquarium in this full outfit. Right. It's also, I mean, obviously anyone can continue their education. It just seems like, oh, she's got a really great job at the aquarium. Yeah. Like, they, And she's learning anthropology at night. Yeah. It just seems like those don't, those two careers don't seem to go together. <laughs> The biker leaves the window, and the diver only sees the edge of an elbow as they clear the window frame. The diver climbs out of the tank and heads to the employee locker room. We see doors reopening behind her as the rider follows her into the locker room. The girl in the locker room is Kim Morrison, Millet's assistant, who is said to be a friend of the deceased Anne Barron. She hears the sound of somebody nearby, and we get an insert of the rider dragging the kukri along a metal grate. Kim returns to the locker room when she gives up on the sounds, and impossibly... The biker bursts out of a locker to attack her. There's no way this person could have snuck past her into this compartment without being seen. It's a very small locker room. The rider slashes at her with the kukri, and Kim blocks the swings with her arms. Eventually, the rider tears down a net from a hook and catches Kim in it. She rolls around on the floor, unable to escape as the killer approaches. Kim eventually wriggles free of the net, but it's too late to save her, and the rider swings the weapon down on her neck. We hard cut to a turtle eating a squid in the fish tank, and then we hear a customer screaming as Ken's head is dropped into the tank and then bounces off a turtle's head on oh. its way to the bottom of the tank. Oh, I felt so bad about that. The, the turtle doesn't seem too disturbed. It goes down and starts eating the face on this head. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious what they shoved in this mannequin head to get the turtle to eat it. But it, it's a nice touch, though, that it goes to eat the face. Yeah, it, but it's just like direct hit. Yeah, and lucky for them that the face is pointed away from the window because you assume that this is not the best prosthetic in the world, but it's believable at the angle we see it plunk into this tank. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a head in a fish tank? Oh, boy. I do. Uh, now to remember the name of that movie. Is it He Knows You're Alone? No. Eyes of a Stranger? No. Eyes of a Stranger. <laughs> oh, I did it. Nice. And then before that was He Knows You're Alone. So we've had three heads and fish tanks now. Austin and Taj discuss the latest crime and the continued pattern of water. Taj offers some silly theories. Maybe the guy we're after is a sailor. And he thought she was some kind of mermaid. Like, what do they call them? Those Laurelay and Why the do I put up with you? Because I'm lovable. <laughs> I really like their, their uh, interactions. They're very fun. 
Lieutenant Austin heads to Millet's apartment, since the victim is the second of his students to die. Agi answers the door and tries to turn Austin away, but he explains that he's a cop, and he has questions for Millet. Austin is led to Millet's office, and he informs Millet that another girl has died, but Millet doesn't think to ask how this involves him. He just offers a bit of philosophy on humankind. You see, animals kill when they're hungry, or when they're threatened. But man is the only animal who destroys his own kind for the sheer pleasure of it. The dead girl was one of your students, Professor. I don't tell me these are pointless, motiveless killings, because I don't believe it. Who was it? Kim Morrison. Millet, facing away from Austin and toward camera, closes his eyes with disappointment. Well, f- first, that's not true. People like to pretend that that's true. Right, there's plenty of animals But it's not true. There's that... plenty of animals that just kill, that don't kill for food. Right. Um or self-defense uh but kill their own kind and even that's true yeah yeah but i feel like he should be more shocked here because he has been associated with every girl that has died i think that he has to know what's going on and so he can't be shocked i mean i don't want to spoil anything yeah but it just seems like yeah, I mean, maybe for the well, police, he should be looking more. Well, there's one of two situations. One, he's doing it, right, and he should act more shocked Pretend because to be shocked, he's yes. doing yeah. it. Or, or two, two, he's he not doing it, and else. he should just be more shocked. Yeah, <laughs> but he could also not be doing it and suspect someone else strongly and not think enough of his own self-preservation to mm. act shocked. I suppose. Austin asks if Millet was ever romantically involved with Anne Barron or Kim Morrison, and he denies both suggestions. When he leaves, Austin makes it clear that he doesn't buy everything that Millet is selling. Agi is quickly sobbing because the line of questioning seems to confirm her fear that Millet is seeing other students besides her. Insolent son of a bitch. He's just doing his job. Don't start defending me. I'm not defending How many of you are cheap rumors? It's pretty common gossip right the school, Vincent. Oh, Christ. You're not going to have a jealous tantrum, are you? She wants to know why he needs anyone else when she'll do anything for him. We cut back to the diner sometime later, where the same waitress, Carol, is checking on Agi again. She watches as a table of construction workers hit on Carol. Hi, baby. How's my sweetheart? Hi. Can I get you guys anything? Uh, like excited? <laughs> Outside the restaurant, Professor Millet pulls up on a motorcycle, but his helmet looks different from the one we've seen the killer wear. He sits down at Agi's table to apologize, and she admits to him that she's pregnant. He doesn't seem super excited, but she lets him know that she's keeping the baby. I, I do love his response of, so that's why you've been acting so crazy. Right, exactly. It's like, what? <laughs> she's apparently already in the second trimester, and Millet supposes that's why she's been so crazy lately. Good thing to do when you're apologizing to a woman is to tell her that she's crazy. Carol stops by the table to ask if Millet needs anything, and he can't help but mention how pretty she is while turning down the offer. Do you have to flirt with a waitress? This is trying to be friendly. He continues to assure Agi that everything will be all right, and she has an idea. Can we get married, Vincent? I've made you so happy, I promise. I gotta go. (laughs) (laughs) That's the perfect response in this moment. After he leaves, Carol tells Agi that she thinks the professor is full of shit. We cut to him arriving at Wendell College, and this time we actually see his motorcycle, which is like a motocross dirt bike. Inside the school, Millet heads straight to Helene Griffin's office, but she can't talk now. She closes the door in his face, and inside we see another student of Millet's, Kathy, crying. She's here to reveal her affair to the school's registrar. Helene Griffin says that this is the last straw, and she intends to fire Millet for his many indiscretions. I am not going to allow that Professor Millet to use this college as a playground for his sexual exploits. Outside the office, we see Millet is still listening by the door. But three or four other rumors about women having an affair with him that are also now dead. Totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's totally cool. Yeah, because we've only seen what two murders but there have been both in his class yeah we don't know anything about that first victim except that her head landed in a duck pond somewhere mrs griffin tries to comfort kathy but gets a little touchy-feely with her she invites the student to spend the night at her home to talk things out and to avoid being alone tonight back at the lamplight restaurant the manager gus is stepping out for the night and leaving carol to lock up 
He apologizes that she won't have Gary's help, but she says she'll do fine without him. There are only three people that work in this restaurant. Yeah. And one of them disappeared. She follows Gus to the door, locks it behind him, and flicks off all the lights. She lifts a massive pot of chili out of the refrigerator and places it on a stovetop. When she goes to move other things in the fridge, we see a gloved hand switch off the master power to the building. Weirdly, everything turns off except for the light in the freezer. I guess we needed some light for this scene. She calls out to whoever turned off the lights, but nobody responds. Suddenly, the killer appears and whips out their distinctive kukri. When the killer gets Carol cornered against it, too many K sounds. When the killer gets Carol cornered against the door to the restaurant, Carol can't get it unlocked fast enough. Her dialogue here is refreshing, though, because she says the kind of stuff I would say in this situation. <laughs> I had the exact same note. I was like, oh, man, she's like me trying to escape a <laughs> yeah. killer. She's like, oh, shit, fucking lock. Oh, fuck. <laughs> fucking creep. Get away from me. Oh, shit. Fuck. Fuck. Oh. 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 I love that they probably didn't expect her to do that until they were doing the scene and they were just like, oh, that's a choice. (laughs) We're just going to leave that in there. (laughs) I like this for her character. She fights the rider with the chairs piled up on the tables, but the killer keeps coming and slicing into her arms and shoulders with the blade. When the rider gets Carol pushed up beside a mirror, it seems like the killer accidentally stabs the reflection, mistaking it for Carol. <laughs> like, it's, it swings the knife and crashes through the mirror instead of her. Well, they are wearing a helmet with a tinted... Uh... I guess, yeah. Carol actually makes it out the back door and down the stairs into an alley, but while constantly checking behind her for the killer, she runs full speed into the motorcycle rider, who swings the kukri down hard against her neck, and we get this weird three-shot repeating action moment where Carol just turns her head quickly, but there isn't a cut on her neck, and her head isn't removed by this slice, so I feel like seeing the shot three times actually kind of ruins this moment. Yeah. For the first time, we see the killer walking around the crime scene after the kill with the head to plant it somewhere to be found tomorrow. In the morning, Gus arrives at Lamplight Restaurant and is somehow able to use the key on the front door even though Carol had engaged the slide lock. He's disappointed to find the dining room littered with chairs on the floor. All told, there's maybe four chairs on the ground, but Gus and his first two customers seem flabbergasted by it. Shit, what the hell was going on here? Look at it, goddamn mess. Must have been a hell of a potty. And it's like, four or five chairs, guys, calm down. Like, most of the problem is that there's chairs still on tables that you have yeah. to take down as a part of the morning routine. But what I really like is that these his two regulars are like, Gus, you go get food started. We'll, we'll, we'll clean up out here. Yeah. It's like, they, well, it's so nice of them. Yeah, they're kind of nice, and they're also like, where's our fucking food? And it's like, I literally just unlocked the door. <laughs> you walked in before I closed it. In the kitchen, Gus moves the same big pot of chili from the freezer again back to the stovetop, and the construction workers take down all the chairs from the tops of the tables. Thought for sure the head is going to be in of the course. stew pot. You're why, supposed to. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. As soon as the stew is hot, he serves up two bowls to the men. Stew breakfast. In his second bite, one of the guys gets a mouthful of hair. Gus! Yeah? Did you ever think of wearing a hairnet when you made the stew? Why? What's the matter? What do you fucking think, Gus? <laughs> Do you know what a hairnet does, Gus? Pretty fucking obvious the guy's complaining about hair in his stew. Weirdly, the other customer is quick to prove his is hair-free by greedily <laughs> slurping down extra spoonfuls. Like, no hair in mine, see? <laughs> it's Jesus Christ, why are you testing it like that? Yeah, but if there's Test ha- it with your hand. But also, there's proof that there's hair in the stew, period. Yeah. So you're still eating hair stew. Yeah, do you think this came from a different pot than that guy's stew? Stop. Throw the rest away. Gus returns to the kitchen to check the pot and transfers the contents of the stew pot into a clean one to check it for more hair. I don't think you'd be able to see hair in this process, but I think that's what he's checking for. Of course, we're expecting the head to tumble out as he dumps the stew, but as more and more disappears into the bottom pot, we see nothing's happening. There's no head in here. There was literally just hair from someone carelessly cooking and dropping I hair I almost feel it. like that's worse. <laughs> yeah, it probably is. <laughs> yeah. Because if there was a head in it, there'd be an excuse for this. Yeah. I feel like the reason there's not a head in here is because even the filmmakers were like, that's too fucking gross to imply these guys are eating head stew. Like, let's just not have the head be in there and just a little bit of hair, and that's fine. 
Gus starts moving around looking for something else. What he's looking for, I'm not so sure. But we keep getting fake head scares. Right. Things so, just keep tumbling down. <laughs> first, first he checks the freezer shelves and refrigerator boxes, and then this cardboard box above the fridge that dumps a pair of amusingly head-shaped melons on the man. Uh, he goes to wash his hands in the sink, and he drops the soap in the water. He starts to drain the sink to find the soap, but there's something under the cloudy water that grosses him out to touch. When he pulls the plug, he watches the water drain slowly as the shape of a human head can be made out in the cloudy water. Oh my god! Oh my god! For some reason, Lieutenant Austin seems especially troubled about the head being found in the sink, even though this totally fits the pattern we've established. But he's like, why was it in the sink? And it's like, you just, this isn't the water thing, right? You, you established this pattern. They ask Gus where his dishwasher Gary might be because he's famously strange. Apparently he's been out sick for a while, but Gus hands over his address. The rest of Carol's body is discovered in a dumpster in the back alley. Austin and Taj stop by Gary's place and knock on his door a couple times before just walking in, evidently unaware of how warrants work. They find Gary in his apartment and start asking questions like, why haven't you been at work? Gary's walls are covered with taped up pornography and he has a hockey mask on his dresser, but this is pre Friday the 13th Jason hockey mask, so it's probably not even a serial killer reference. Maybe he plays hockey. Gary hasn't been to work because he's been sick. They ask when he last saw Carol and he mentions the night before last when he most recently showed up for work. Taj talks Gary through his criminal record and specifically a series of indecent exposure charges and during Taj's questioning, Lieutenant Austin checks the rest of the apartment and decides Gary is clean. His reasoning is that peeping toms and flashers never commit serious crimes. Then why did we come here? <laughs> you knew that before you got here. The stairwell on the way out of Gary's apartment features graffiti for the Ghetto Ghouls Street Gang. Do you guys recall the last time we mentioned the Ghetto Ghouls Street Gang? Oh man, Defiance? Not Defiance, but uh. it's another white savior cleaning up the streets movie. What is the name of that movie? With the gay men. No. Can't stop not, the music? No. <laughs> the one where he goes into the leather scene to like. No, not cruising. Find, cruising, thank you. Not cruising. It also features a guy driving around on a motorcycle with a motorcycle helmet killing people. Mad Max? No. The Ghetto Ghouls are the gang that Robert Ginty was hunting down in The Exterminator last season. Uh, the Exterminator rode a motorcycle? Yeah, in some scenes. Bizarrely, Lieutenant Austin just leaves Taj at Gary's building to rush back to Millet's place with more questions. Like, he gets in the car, and before Taj can get in, he just drives away. <laughs> I don't understand why he did that. Well, because Taj is insistent that Gary is should remain a suspect. And then he's like, least. all right, then go back inside. Yeah, exactly. Okay. When no one answers the door at Millet's place, Austin picks the lock because he is evidently trying to sabotage any case he can make against these people. Inside, he finds a picture of Agi and Professor Millet riding two dirt bikes together, matching dirt bikes that look exactly like all the dirt bikes that we've seen in this movie. He finds books on Millet's desk entitled Headhunters of Papua by Tony Saulnier and The Art of Papua and New Guinea by Udad Serra and Alberto Folch. He flips through a stack of photographs from Millet's recent trip to the region, and he sees Millet talking with local headhunting tribes who wear human skulls on necklaces. We also see a shot of Millet and Agi standing side by side in pith helmets with human skulls in their hands. He continues to investigate the office as Agi walks in catching him. Isn't breaking and entering a crime even for a policeman? Isn't headhunting a crime even for an anthropologist? What's that supposed to mean? Nothing, except I suddenly find myself up to my neck in heads. Heads in duck ponds, in fish tanks, in buckets. And then I come here and I find more heads. Are you suggesting there's some connection between Professor Millet's research and these awful murders? Yes, Miss Agi. I'm suggesting just that. Agi suspiciously comes to the defense of these foreign tribes, explaining that they think taking a human head gives them its life force and by submerging the heads in water, they filter out evil spirits from the souls they collect. Austin leaves the office, and Agi moves to make a phone call. Before she gets through to anyone, she hangs up, rethinking the action. She heads directly to Wendell College to meet with Professor Millet. Agi happens to wander in while Mrs. Griffin is lecturing Millet on dating and dropping all the girls in his class. Having heard this snippet, Agi turns around to leave, convinced that Millet is cheating with yet another girl from his class. 
Who the hell do you think you are? I'm sorry about that, Professor. Just the same. It is my responsibility to take an interest in the welfare of the girls in this school. I think we know what your interest is in the girls in this school, Miss Griffin. And it's not for their welfare. Oh. Yikes. I don't understand the need for this character trait here. Is it supposed to be another red herring? Yes, she is another red herring, for sure. They don't do a very good job of I setting agree. her up as such. She's the least fleshed out of all the red herrings. Yeah. Other I, than Carol, who I was sure did it. I, I was also very suspect of Carol. I was never suspect of Carol. Oh, really? Oh, man. I was totally suspect of Carol when because she's like in on all the gossip. That's true. And she does like come at her like, he's a liar. That yeah, guy's a liar. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, man, she's, she's doing it. Yeah. Millet leaves to follow Miss Agi. That night, Lieutenant Austin is outside of a building, and we can see someone moving inside. Millet is at his desk taking notes on tribal figurines, and he flicks off his desk lamp and steps outside to ride his motocross bike somewhere. The starting of the engine wakes Austin in his car, and he follows him. The road is quickly blocked by a garbage truck, and while he waits, Austin gets a call from Taj outside Griffin's place. Apparently, Gary just showed up. By coincidence, I guess? Yeah. Austin heads straight there and joins Taj in his car. And why was he watching Griffin's place? Because they'd narrowed it down to these two people as suspects at, for some reason at this point. They're they're the only two members of the faculty of this girls' school where the students be done. <laughs> There's no other teachers. <laughs> Gary's just standing on the sidewalk across the street from Griffin's building. When Gary makes a move for the front door, Taj offers to handle the arrest. Inside Griffin's place, we see that she has Kathy in her bed and she's kissing the girl's neck. Unclear if Kathy is into this or freaked out by the abuse of a second faculty member from Wendell College. But she doesn't seem totally into it at first. Does Gary just know that if he comes to this particular window, there'll be some like lesbian action happening? He's got Lesdar. He's just like, I know what happens <laughs> up there. I, just, I got my perch. It just seems weirdly coincidental that he's here. Maybe he's he, not connected to either of these two. Unless Griffin just charges him a nickel to sit on that branch. It's like a... Bloody birthday. What was the, what were the kids were charging for porn through the, the hole in the wall? Happy birthday to me. No, bloody birthday, I think. Suddenly, Gary's face is visible in the bedroom window, and he watches these two women make out. The phone rings inside, and Griffin has to leave the bed to answer it. When she gets all the way down her spiral staircase to answer the phone, there's nobody on the other end, and she is suddenly attacked by the motorcycle rider. A door closes to block the camera from the action, and we hear the struggle on the opposite side of the door. This was actually really cool. Yeah, except who who called? The motorcycle rider did. How? From another phone. <laughs> from inside the house? Sure. The call is you never heard calls coming <laughs> the from calls inside the house. Calls coming from inside the house. Yeah. Would the she, end. Would she dial Griffin's number and then hang up really quick? <laughs> I don't know what she did, or he did, or whoever did. I don't know what this person did. Griffin manages to peel the door open, but the rider pulls her back into the room and her blood is smeared on the door. I really like that detail, too. Moments later, the kukri is plunged through the door, leaving a bloody hole. The door opens again, and we can see Griffin's legs in a puddle of blood on the hardwood. And this is all like one shot. It's a really cool moment, and I, I just appreciate that the filmmakers went the extra mile to make this one creepy shot this way. There's, there's a lot of thought and a lot of work went into this. Kathy is woken in bed by the sound of running water and asks after Mrs. Griffin. She follows droplets of blood on the floor into the bathroom, and we see dark human hair overflowing from a closed and bloody toilet seat. I would not open this for a million dollars. Right? She opens the lid and screams to find the head of Mrs. Griffin, and as she backs out of the room in terror, she is grabbed by the writer, who quickly decapitates her with the kukri. Outside, Lieutenant Austin hears the scream and kicks open the front door to the building. He has his gun drawn as he ascends the spiral staircase. Where's Taj been all this Taj time? Taj is still arresting Gary. Suddenly, the writer tackles Austin down the stairs, knocking the gun from his hand, and then racing out the door. That's a really dangerous move because you're more, you're more than likely just to injure yourself. Yeah, you both get paralyzed in this fall. <laughs> Outside, Austin finds Taj arresting Gary but insists that Gary is not responsible. Just then, the motorcycle rider blasts by at full speed, and we cut to hours later as the rider pulls up outside Mr. Millet's building. I, I do like that Taj is unwilling to let Gary yeah. go. He's like, no, 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 you're still under arrest. I mean, what he did was illegal. That's true. But Taj had to, like, get him down out of a tree, so maybe yeah. that's why it took so long. It's like, come down. No. It's like, <laughs> hey, Taj, you happen to see what happened in that room? No, you pulled me out of the branch before I could report a murder. Oh, boy. I could have told you who the suspect was. Yeah. <laughs> the 
The rider takes a few steps into Millet's building and removes the helmet and balaclava to reveal long, flowing hair. And when she turns around, we see it's Agi, or Eleanor, if you want to call her Eleanor. Some people say Eleanor. Millet asks where she's been, and she shows him the bloody knife. Did it for us, Vincent. And for our baby. Oh my god. I had to do it, Vincent. Somehow, it only occurs to Millet now that the person who's been killing all his other girlfriends is his crazy pregnant girlfriend. This is why I think he should have been more shocked earlier and more invested in finding the actual killer because he seems to be brushing it off, but he clearly doesn't know who it is. Yeah, apparently point. not. He seems shocked here. While he comes to terms with this revelation, her mood changes drastically, and I can't explain what's so hot about it, but it definitely <laughs> is. <laughs> she's just suddenly smiling and assumes he's very proud of what she's done. She's still catching her breath from the race back here, and her concerned face slowly morphs into a smile as she offers to prepare him a meal. You must be hungry. I'll get you something to eat. She drags a hand across his shoulders as she passes him to head upstairs, and he nearly throws up in his mouth thinking about all the victims. He confronts her in the kitchen with her obvious insanity, but she says that the tribes they visited have been doing this kind of thing for millennia. It's this culture that's uncivilized, Vincent, where a woman isn't allowed to defend herself, and the ones that she loves. You kill them all? Yes. And if you insist on having affairs with other women, I'm gonna have to kill them too. Now that's logical, isn't it? Yes. Yes, that's very logical. Insanely, she seems to have won him over here. At first I thought he was just playing along, but he seems genuinely convinced. They hear sirens approaching, and she makes it clear to him that if they come here and kill her, that their child will die too. On my first watch, I assumed he couldn't possibly care and that this yeah. would be an obvious two birds, one stone situation. Yeah, exactly. This is the guy who said, I have to go when she said, let's get married. Well, and she would have to know that they're not coming for her. Right. They're coming for him. Yeah. Because he is their number one suspect. Right. As the police pull up outside, Eleanor Agi makes a run for the door and Millet tells her not to go. Eleanor, no, if you go out there, they're going to kill you. They wrestle a bit in the hall as Lieutenant Austin pounds on the door. Suddenly, the motorcycle rider races the motocross bike out from around the house and the cops are quickly chasing it through the city. The rider sneaks through various one-way streets, and Gary is still in the backseat of Taj's cruiser, asking him to stop. I have to go to the bathroom. I gotta go to the bathroom! I'll do it on the goddamn window! We get a shot of the bike blowing past camera, followed by a first car and then a second, and I really wanted Gary's ass to just be shitting out the backseat window <laughs> as it flies by. The cops split up to block the bike from two sides, and the rider intentionally crashes hard into the side of a patrol car, launching through the air and slamming down on the windshield of a police car before rolling to the ground. They also open fire yeah, directly at this rider. At a moving motorcycle. <laughs> if you have a motorcycle or a vehicle heading directly towards you, and you are intentionally trying to kill or shoot the driver, you have to know that the momentum of said vehicle will it's continue to hit you. towards yeah. you. And if this motorcycle isn't going straight, it's more likely to hit you. If, if he crashes it, then it's going to be coming at you sideways. They call for an ambulance and then pull the rider's helmet off to reveal Millet's bloodied and cross-eyed face. He was killed instantly in the crash and they cancel the ambulance order. <laughs> I think you still need an ambulance. Usually an ambulance takes the dead body away still. Well, yeah, you need someone to declare, yeah. to declare death. You don't just toss it in the back of a police car because it's dead. <laughs> Although that would have been funny to toss it in there. Gary, a little help. <laughs> yeah. He's like peeing out the window with a dead guy sitting next to him. Taj calls up to Austin to rub it in his face that Millet was the killer and Taj was right all along. But didn't Taj think Gary was the killer? Yeah. <laughs> Fuck you, dude. This wraps up the whole case, doesn't it? Does it? We cut to a funeral as the coffin is lowered into the ground and Eleanor Agi is the only mourner. She walks away mid-funeral, having seen enough and Lieutenant Austin stops her on the way to the car. She's definitely the only mourner because she's killed anyone else who would have mourned him. Right. I, I was and actually everyone... hoping that another couple girls were going to show up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that'd be stupid. Like, they assumed also that he was the killer, so they came to the funeral because they didn't realize that this woman was the killer. Yeah, and then they end up dead anyways because yeah, exactly. she's yeah. still jealous. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm, we're, we're assuming that everything's been placed on Millet. Right, yeah. Lieutenant Austin stops her on the way to her car. Is the ceremony over? 
Yes. I hope so. This movie has some really smart lines throughout, and this is probably my favorite one, because he's asking about the tribal ceremony she's been carrying out, killing all these girls, but it also works for the funeral she just left. It's a little bit smarter than the generic slashers we've been covering this year, and I like how the lieutenant seemed to be not a complete idiot the whole time. The camera floats up into the sky over the cemetery, and this would have been a fine place to end the film, but we get one last scene, the only one shot in New York, not Boston. We dissolve to Austin, finishing a shift at his office, and walking to his car to go home, but before he can start it up, a motorcycle rider sits up in the back seat and throws its arms around his neck, choking him. He struggles against the attacker for a moment, but the rider stops, and flips open their visor to reveal it's Taj playing a joke. So who'd you expect, the headhunter? <laughs> Both men laugh and we hard cut to black on the laughter for the credits. I, I like that Judd is like laughing, but also half crying. Yeah. Like I thought seriously I was like, going to die. Yeah, he just shit himself in this car. Because <laughs> I don't imagine he's revealed his theory to Taj that the killer is still alive. I, I mean, he must have, right? I can't think of another movie that we've, we certainly haven't covered one, but I can't think of another movie before this where there is like that last moment jump scare. That's a joke. Right. Like, usually the last moment jump scare is like, oh, the thing is still alive yeah. or yeah. whatever it is. But this one, you know, it's clearly a joke and we wrap it up as such. And I can't think of another movie that's done that before. Unless Taj is the killer. <gasps> we don't know. I mean, no, we know. She did it. She said she killed everyone. Yeah. I like this movie. I was not expecting a lot from this, um, but I thought it was very stylish. I thought the writing was really good. And uh, the red herrings are set up properly uh there's not a lot of rule breaking there's not a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense logically which always bothers me in these and i feel like this one's pretty solid in terms of the structure um and i like the characters i like this millet guy he seems like a a genuine asshole and uh obviously agile is gorgeous and terrifying and uh just completely maniacal and for her first time out the gate like this is her first feature film and for her to be such a convincing psychopath, especially in that last scene when she's confessing everything, it just it just felt really great. I really liked it. I was not a huge fan. No. No, I don't know. I don't. I don't know particularly why, but I didn't find it very engaging. I guess I, there wasn't a lot of mystery in it for me. Sure. Yeah. They they kind of spell it out very early when she's going, you know, scoffing every time he touches a girl. That it's like okay, she's killing the people who. He yeah, likes. I'm like it's it's one of the two of them, and it's not very interesting if it's him. So it's got to be her, right? And yeah, I mean, like I feel like there just wasn't much there aside from that. Yeah, that's probably fair. I just feel like the direction actually uh, was competent. Uh, we had a lot of really fun, like the giant aquarium scene, and like all these little set pieces that you don't get in these normal cheapo slasher films where it's just like people running through different parts of some industrial office building that they had access to i feel yeah. like they they did a better job with this on 1.2 million is not a lot of money considering what they got out of it it looks like a more expensive film than it was yeah i, I mean yeah i think it had a couple of moments that were good but overall meh. and supposedly in in the making of the film the director was very efficient in terms of like getting what he wanted in the first couple takes moving on, getting a lot of pages done each day. And the screenwriter was on set for most of it, and she was very happy with the progress. She was very happy with um, the confidence of the director and, and how everything was coming together. And as far as I know, they're both very proud of the film, but uh, the writer didn't go on to do any more after this. But Well, I think you have a lot of really interesting locations. A kill at an aquarium, kill in a diner, yeah. kill at a school, uh, you know, then, you know, a dis- didn't just want it in an apartment. Double kill in an apartment. Right. So I think that was that was interesting. And I think the aqu- the aquarium one is the standout one for me only because what an exotic location. Yeah. For one, for this girl who goes to night school who also is clearly trained and, you know, she's a certified dr- diver and, you know, it's a lot of responsibility. But I don't think you'd be doing this kind of work alone yeah, probably not. I don't think I don't think you'd be there'd be some support there. Yeah, so someone t- while you're in the water to be watching you, but 
And I'm assuming that when the head was found with the screaming patron, it was the next day. That's why I, I feel like this was at night because I, I'm not because I'm not quite sure of the time. Oh, of I this. thought I thought the the screaming patron was immediately post kill because someone had to throw the head into the tank. Yeah, I, I yeah, I, I it's it's weird. Like you see the head fall and land in the water, and then it cuts to a woman screaming. Yeah, and I don't know if that's happening at the same time. I or think so. They're I seeing. Th- it I think the they're literally day. watching the head fall in as it was tossed okay. in, but nobody's able to get up above the tank fast enough to to catch the culprit. This movie had a lot of interesting things in it, but it it was very slow. They they like Jesse said, I think that that they push really hard on it being millet. Yeah. He's he's very detached. He's very menacing. He's a jerk um, to everybody. Yeah. He he's like clearly like has like love affairs with all these students. Right. Uh and I was like, okay, well, if it is him Then that's too obvious. Yeah, it's really stupid. That's why my money was on Carol. Uh <laughs> I feel like I was like, all they want is expecting Carol. Uh I think I would have liked, but then maybe it would have made it too obvious. Uh, to have a little bit more ceremony with the kills. Yeah. Like that, that this whole thing is supposed to be some sort of ritual. I think it would have been more interesting to have some of that, but then you would only have two people to suspect. I do think it's weird that they're using, from what I researched as an Indian machete for these like Southeast Asian islands uh, weapon. Like they should have found something local to that place mm-hmm. to be the the weapon of choice for these kills. But I also like that, they clearly thought ahead to the fact that what is the weakness of decapitations in horror films? And it's that heads look shitty. Fake heads look like trash most of the time, 99% of the time. So So what are we going to do? (laughs) We're going to hide them in places. Yeah. So like the ones in a bucket, ones in a duck pond that we never even see the one that's in the sink. Like they literally drain the sink. They, they probably decided where to cut based on when you could tell it wasn't a real head. So they were just like, it would just keep, Make it obvious that it's a head, but as soon as it's clear that it's a fake head, cut. And uh, and the one that lands in the in the fish tank is the most impressive one because it's the hardest to hide from any angle. But it looks great. It looks like a human head got tossed into a tank. I do wish there was a little bit more blood mixed into the water, like coming out of the head. But um, but it I, works. I great. bet you they were a little limited on that because they I'm actually sure. had to throw it into a real fish tank yes. with real animals. Yeah. That does make sense. It probably had to be all biodegradable yeah. material. Yeah. Especially whichever part the turtle goes into munch on. But this is a thumbs up for me. ground beef in the fake head mouth. <laughs> I thought it was going to be made of restaurant straws. <laughs> oh, yeah. Turtles oh, love those. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was a pretty terribly obscure joke. It was actually a head of lettuce. Uh, <laughs> turtles like lettuce. Oh, do they? <laughs> um, this is a thumbs up for me. I don't know. I think I'll give it a reluctant thumbs up. Uh, then, then I have no reluctance in giving it a thumbs down. There you go. <laughs> uh, it, it didn't have too much of the slasher. I would, ca- I would actually probably classify this more of a police thriller. Sure. Yeah. It does. Um, it is very procedural. Uh, but not enough. It, not procedural enough. We spent too much time with characters who aren't the police. Sure. Uh, and like Carol. Yeah, <laughs> like Carol, and and Miss Agi who was like, well, if she's not a victim yet, there's something weird going on here. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, for but me- But also it, at the beginning, it's like uh, when the person's like, oh, aren't you worried about uh, going out alone? And she's like, oh, no, I'm not worried about it. And I was like, that's because you know you're too hot to be one of the girls that dies in the first 20 minutes of this movie. <laughs> but it's a thumbs down. That's fair. Um, where are we putting this letterboxed, guys? Do we know? Uh, I went back and forth a lot. On where to put this. I think that you might have actually convinced me that it belonged slightly higher than I originally had it. But Good. It only went up a few slots. Um, I have it at 104 out of 119. Whoa. That's still <laughs> really low. I told you. I, I mean, like, this movie did not do it for me. Like, right. it's really just it has a couple of moments. Um it is below Deadly Blessing and above Tuck Everlasting. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, Deadly Blessing was fun, too. I think I think this is better than Deadly Blessing. I think the writing is better here than Deadly Blessing. Yeah, In Deadly but, Blessing, it was like, like, you know who killed this character? Yeah, neither do I. Yeah, but, uh, but, <laughs> but I honestly...
honestly was more engaged by it because I'm like, what the hell is happening? Yeah. But I also have a lot of really, really terrible movies above it, which is why you're like, oh my God, what a four. No, there's some really awful movies above it, but they're awful in the way that I want to watch again. I don't ever need to see this movie I like at the end of a slasher to understand what happened in every scene. (laughs) And so in Deadly Blessing, it's like, they answer one-eighth of the questions that they ask. <laughs> but in this movie, it all wraps up in a nice little bow. I just needed to be ridiculous. And this sure. wasn't ridiculous at not, all. Not enough. It was ridiculous. Not, not really. Enough. A human head is tossed into an aquarium and eaten by a turtle. Plausible. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen that happen. That's not crazy. When was the last time you went to the aquarium? That's, uh, that's how they feed them. Yeah. Richard, what do you think? Um, I have it... Uh, Oddly enough, I actually also have it close to Deadly Blessings. Um, I have it at 54, which puts it below Tarzan the Ape Man, but above Prince of the City. All right. I have it pretty close to you, actually. I have it in 47 out of 119. That puts it just under Superman 2 and just above On the Right Track. Was I way wrong? No, I just didn't like this kind of movie. Film is subjective. People like different things. Our director here was Ken Hughes. He co-wrote Chitty Chitty Bang Bang with Roald Dahl, and he also directed it, I think. He also did uncredited writing work on The Ipcris File and Shark, and this was his final directorial credit. The writer was Ruth Avergon, and this was her only writing credit. I really wish she had done more because I love the character of Lieutenant Austin, and uh, I think he's really funny and smart, and I like smart detective characters in these movies. The music here was from Brad Fidel, who also scores Just Before Dawn later this season, and even later, Fright Night, Serpent in the Rainbow, True Lies, and Johnny Mnemonic, but he's best known for his scores to Terminator and Terminator 2, and his wife, Anne Dusenberry, was Tina in Jaws 2, Stevie in Heartbeat, and Valerie Duran in Cutter's Way. Cinematographer Mark Irwin also DP'd Tanya's Island, which gets a mini-sode later this year. He lit Scanners, and he's back with Cronenberg for Videodrome, Dead Zone, and The Fly. He lit The 88 Blob, Fright Night Part 2, RoboCop 2, Mighty Ducks 2, Dumb and Dumber, Kingpin, Scream, Freddy Got Fingered, and Old School. Editor Robert M. Raitano later edits My Blue Heaven and Sleepless in Seattle. Leonard Mann played Lieutenant Judd Austin. He looks kind of Matt Clarky. Before this, he was Nick in Humanoid, and later Bart Winslow in Flowers in the Attic, and Laura's Psychiatrist in Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, Better Watch Out. Rachel Ward played Eleanor. This was her debut film credit. She's back later this season as Domino in Sharky's Machine. Next season, she's Juliet Forrest in Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, Sally Jones in Fortress, and Jesse Weiler in Against All Odds. Rachel Ward followed this up in 1983 with another slasher, The Final Terror, and more recently, she voiced Peter Rabbit's mother in that James Corden hybrid animation movie. We just recently had the voice of Peter Rabbit's father, Brian Brown, in our Minnesota review of The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, and before that he was in Winter of Our Dreams and Breaker Morant. Drew Snyder played Vincent Millet. He was Deputy Commissioner Hawkins in Death Wish 2, Ayers in War Games, he's Orville Jamieson in Firestarter, FBI Interrogator in Falcon and the Snowman, and Lawson in Commando. Joseph R. Sicari played Taj. He has lots of credits, mostly small stuff, but in 2011 or 2012, he showed up in a pilot for the Gregory Brothers television series directed by Peyton Reed. I guess it didn't get picked up, but wouldn't that have been cool? I didn't know that there was such a thing. Yeah. He was also Salvatore Bassalone or Bassaloni in three episodes of The Pacific. More recently, he was Giovanni in Rebel Wilson rom-com Isn't It Romantic and Dawn on a series called I Do. Nick Karras played Gus. He was an army doctor in a small circle of friends and Detective 2 in First Deadly Sin last season. Annette Miller played Helene Griffin. Not much else in the 80s, but last year she was Mrs. Tankin in Don't Look Up. Bill McCann played Gary. Like we said, he looked familiar, but his only other acting credit is New Year's Partier in Mermaids. Margot Skinner played Stevie Cabot. That's the disappearing girlfriend from the beginning of the film. She played a flight attendant in Quick Change and a character on The Chappelle Show whose name I can't say because it sounds too close to the N-word. Leonard Corman played a priest. He was Dr. Capek or Capek in Raiders of the Living Dead. Belle McDonald played Marjorie Armand. She was Mrs. Posner in Jaws. She's Aunt Betty in House Sitter and Mrs. Tanner in Celtic Pride. William McDonald played medical examiner. He was Charles Garwin in The Kidnapping of the President last season. Garwin, not Darwin, 
Garwin. Kevin Fennessy played Harry, the janitor. I'm guessing that's the guy who said, hey, are you going to leave soon, teacher lady? Because I'm locking the building that we work at. He played a funeral mourner in The Verdict. Later, he shows up in uncredited roles in The Witches of Eastwick, Big, Working Girl, Field of Dreams, and The Fisher King, and recently credited roles on that Castle Rock Stephen King series, and Mr. Capo Bianco in Kevin Can Fuck Himself, which I haven't been watching, but I've heard good things about. That's the show uh, with the girl that was on Shit Creek. So she's on two shows in a row that have curse words in the title. Mm. But she's the daughter on that show. And it's like a meta show where it's sometimes it's a sitcom and sometimes it's a serious drama show. Looks interesting. I haven't watched any of it. John Blood played a construction worker. He's one of the two guys that wanted breakfast stew. He's the funeral director in The Verdict. He's patient in One Crazy Summer and Deli Counterman in The Witches of Eastwick. J.J. Wright played Plain Clothesman. His second feature acting credit was in David O. Russell's American Hustle, so he took a big break. <laughs> Most recently, he went uncredited as Bus Driver in Free Guy. Ted Duncan played Garbage Truck Man, mostly stunt work, probably driving, since his acting credits are Driver in The Love Bug, Chicken Truck Driver in Freebie and the Bean, and Truck Driver in The Octagon. Patricia Rust played Pat... This was her only film appearance. She was also a writer, including a couple episodes of It's Gary Shandling's Show. Not to be confused with... Not to be confused with The Gary Shandling Show, which is not The Gary Shandling Show. Yeah. There are many. There's two. There's three? Larry Sanders? Yeah. Would Larry Sanders count as a Gary Shandling Show? I think so. Anything he appeared on, right? Kevin King played another policeman. He was Farnsworth in Iron Eagle and Opa in The Quest slash Frog Dreaming. Hmm. I think that's everything for Night School. Oh, I should mention that there was a, a very recent remake, but it's a very loose remake. It has <laughs> Tiffany Haddish and uh, Kevin Hart, right? Is Tiffany Haddish the girl in that? I think it is. I think it and might be. And it turns out at the end she's the murderer. No, it's, it's just a comedy. It's a rom-com, I think. I think that's everything for Night School. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd. Or as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Tim, which IMDb describes like so. A somewhat mentally handicapped 20-year-old man works as a laborer, but everyone abuses his naivete. A nice 40-year-old American woman hires him one day, and they become close. However, the town and his family see her as predatory. This is all kinds of inaccurate. He's not 20. He's 24. <laughs> he is not constantly preyed upon for his naivete. Uh, and his entire family does not have a problem with the predatory thing. It's just one person in particular. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find a good trailer for Tim, so I ended up grabbing the audio from the Everything is Terrible Supercut, <laughs> which emphasizes the ridiculousness of the plot. But it's actually not a bad trailer. Okay. Oh, something the matter. Oh, my gardener hasn't been here for a month. Now he can't come for another week. Now they're all the same, useless. Hi, Tim. Throw a hose over Miss Horton's bushes before you go, will you, dear? There's a good boy. Right? Right, I miss it, Parker. Good looking, isn't he? Not over bright, mind you, but a nice kid. I'd really like to meet Tim someday. I think he'd like to meet you. What's he like? I love chocolate cake. Any speech abnormality? Any physical deformity? I'm not a full quid. Anyone will tell you that. No. He's quite handsome, actually. Gee, that. I'm going to the beach with Mary. I don't see why you should cry if you're happy. Someday I hope you're so happy that you'll cry. Well, who is she anyway? We've never met her. Sounds nice enough on the phone. What does she see in Tim, anyhow? Now we can go swimming. What do you mean, what does she see in him? I want so to know what he's really thinking. I'll just put it in until it's sweet enough. You don't like me anymore. It's him you like now. I've seen you hugging him all the time. And I want you to hug me. But you don't. Tim. Mary.
guilty. What's wrong? And I, I promised his father... Have come up with a solution? Only not seeing him again. Why don't you marry him? That's <laughs> crazy. Why not marry him? Will you come to my wedding? I'll even dance of yours. Here's what some people are saying about the Projection Booth podcast. The Projection Booth is single-handedly the greatest film podcast you could ever listen to or could possibly want. Top-notch. Five stars. This has quickly become one of my favorite film-related podcasts. Always interesting. A completely unpretentious yet fully comprehensive look at films from all genres. This podcast is an amazing resource and one that helps in the discovery or rediscovery of films for anyone who enjoys thinking about cinema. If you love movies and podcasts, subscribe and enjoy the Projection Booth. Every episode is beautifully crafted to give you a true audio experience, a wonderful companion to the films they cover. The Projection Booth is awesome. A wide range of films covered from classic to cult to contemporary, thoroughly researched, very entertaining, and always informative. The Projection Booth Podcast, with new episodes available every week at projectionboothpodcast.com.